Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode, we're tossing on our cowboy hats and riding horseback all the way from Sunset Boulevard to the White House. The first celebrity US president, Ronald Wilson Reagan, marked a turning point in world history. From the aggressive deregulation of Reaganomics to the massive consequences of his aggressive foreign policy, Reagan's influence on the world is undeniable. Working as a military filmmaker, movie star, labor organizer, governor, and the president of the United States, Reagan's career is an erratic one, full of all sorts of strange pivots and turns, including a walk across the aisle. A man of contradictions and controversy, revered and hated in equal measure, this is the story of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan's movie star days are almost over. He was never that much of a star anyway, not really. He's had his moments, sure. There's been a few times that he broke through, but of the 53 films he's appeared in, most are B-pictures. To Hollywood insiders, he's far more well-known as the president of the Screen Actors Guild than as an actor. That's come to an end as well. After over 10 years running the Guild, Reagan is becoming disenchanted with the Democrat-infused world of labor unions. To him, the word Democrat is beginning to sound a lot like socialist. He's a big fan of Richard Nixon, who's saying the same thing. The time has come to find a new job, one a little more politically befitting a born-again Republican. General Electric is looking for someone to give speeches, someone to tell their employees how the world works and how they should vote. The General Electric Vice President, Lemuel Boulware, is one of the few men who hates communists as much as Mr Reagan does. It's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, and soon GE is funding a radio and TV show for Reagan. They even produce a vinyl recording of one of Reagan's speeches. This one, speaking out against socialized medicine. Now, back in 1927, an American socialist, Norman Thomas, six times candidate for president on the Socialist Party ticket, said the American people would never vote for socialism. But he said under the name of liberalism, the American people will adopt every fragment of the socialist program. There are many ways in which our government has invaded the precincts of private citizens, the uh, method of earning a living. Our government is in business to the extent of owning more than 19,000 businesses covering 47 different lines of activity. This amounts to a fifth of the total industrial capacity of the United States. But at the moment, I'd like to talk about another way because this threat is with us and at the moment is more imminent. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. 
Reagan has found his second wind. By serving as GE's corporate stooge, he's found a powerful ally and a platform to share his politics. Forget Hollywood, Reagan's sights are now aimed much, much higher. Long before donning cowboy hats and rousing factory workers, Reagan is a small-town kid in Illinois. The son of a deeply religious mother, Nell Clyde Wilson, and a hard-working alcoholic father, Jack Reagan, young Ronald grows up on the second floor of an apartment building in the small village of Tampico, Illinois. After moving around for a while, the Reagans settle in the nearby town of Dixon, where Ronald attends high school. While his grades are average at best, Reagan shines on stage and out on the football field. He attends the private Christian university Eureka College at his mother's approval and quickly gets involved in campus politics, becoming the student body president. He's an effective organiser, leading a student strike that results in the resignation of the college president. Alongside this, he serves as the president of the Tau Kappa Epsilon fraternity. There is rarely a club in Reagan's life that he doesn't go on to lead. Fresh out of college, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and Economics, he travels to Iowa to work as a sports broadcaster in both football and baseball. Interestingly, he makes a name for himself through his vocal opposition to racism. His parents were unusually progressive amongst white Illinoisans and would have black friends around for dinner. Becoming one of the broadcasters for the Chicago Cubs, Reagan tours with the team to California in 1936. Here, he screen tests for Warner Brothers and winds up with a seven-year contract. Hollywood, here we come. Over the next five years, he makes 30 pictures. While most are B-flicks, he begins to break out in 1940 with his performance of notable college football player George Gipp in Newt Rockney, All-American. This is quickly followed by his star-making turn as a leg amputee in 1942's King's Row, scoring him a spot on the Gallup Poll's Top 100 Stars from 1941 to 1942. However, this momentum is quickly halted by World War II. Reagan enlists as a reserve in the U.S. Army in 1937, and Warner Brothers provide him with a draft deferment in 1941, allowing him to finish King's Row. However, the following year, Reagan heads off to war, or rather, off to a different set. Working for the U.S. Army, he produces over 400 military training films, by the end of his military service in 1945, he's attained the rank of captain. Upon returning to Hollywood, Reagan finds himself unable to recapture his short-lived pre-war stardom and instead looks for another role. Our guest this episode is Dr. Ross Baker, 
Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University, New Jersey. Here he talks about Reagan's time as the president of the Screen Actors Guild. He rose to prominence, actually, as the head of the Screen Actors Guild, which was the union that represented Hollywood uh, actors. And um, it was really it's, it's unusual in the United States to have to have actors represented by a union, but they were, in fact, they still are. There was a lengthy strike recently in the United States of the Screen Actors Guild. And as a consequence, you know, a lot of films that had been scheduled to be produced weren't or were, were, were postponed. But uh, as press president of Screen Actors Guild gave him a very, a very enviable perch, uh, became a, a union spokesperson. And that, that, kind of caused him to rise above being a mere actor uh, to being a, 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 a leader of a union uh, and, 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 and possibly on a par with other union leaders in the United States. And the unions, of course, were traditionally were strongly affiliated with the Democratic Party. And he was a Democrat. Uh, he campaigned for Franklin Roosevelt in 1944 for Harry Truman in 1948. But in the 1940s, he gradually turned away from the Democratic Party and from his formerly mostly liberal political positions. It, Reagan became increasingly disenchanted with the, um, uh, with the Screen Actors Guild uh, and, with, and with Hollywood in general because of what he saw as the infiltration into Hollywood of left-wing and even communist uh, sympathizers. Uh, and there were. Um, there were a lot of screenwriters uh, who ultimately were um, uh, summoned before uh, committees of Congress and questioned about their political affiliations and so on. Um, and ultimately, uh, Reagan resigned his presidency of the Screen Actors Guild about the same time as he embraced the Republican Party, which was in 1952. So having endorsed Harry Truman, the Democrat in 1948, by 1952, he was endorsing Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican uh, for president, um, and became very active in, um, in, in Republican politics. But he paid the bills by being a spokesperson for a number of products. Um, he uh, did television spots, uh, commercials for General Electric um, and, other, and other companies. And he also um, was able to augment his income by going around the country making and giving talks to service clubs and organizations and so on. He was quite in demand and very much as a, as a uh, Republican spokesperson. And this uh, persisted throughout the, throughout the 50s. He married his wife, Nancy, who was herself a, um, a movie star, probably a star of greater magnitude than he was. Um, and she was, to, she was to prove a very, very important figure in his life, that she became, uh, in many ways, his kind of political advisor. And he, he you know, continued to be active uh, as a as a Republican spokesperson, so on. And uh, he, he really became a national figure politically 
in the 1960s when he uh, defeated uh, Pat Brown, uh, the Democratic governor of California, and became California's governor. The previous governor of California, Pat Brown, has been liberal with his spending. Upon getting into office, Reagan quickly battens down the fiscal hatches. Not only does he reduce spending, but in an unconventional move for a Republican, he raises taxes. By midway through his second term as governor, California is back in surplus. As governor, Reagan is responsible for two shockingly progressive pieces of legislation, though not for expected reasons. In 1967, he passes the Mulford Act, an early piece of gun control legislation that forbids the public carrying loaded firearms without a permit. The key motivation for this choice was not gun safety for the average American, but a targeted move against political organisations, particularly the Black Panthers. The same year, he signs the Therapeutic Abortion Act, a piece of legislation that gives women the right to have abortions in the event of rape, incest, or when their physical or mental health would be impaired by the birth. He will go on to argue heavily against abortion, later expressing regret over this. He will claim he was unaware that mental health was included as a viable reason under the bill's parameters. Perhaps the most notable act of Reagan's governorship of California is his clash with protesters at the University of Berkeley. In 1969, he sends in local police and eventually the National Guard to stop the protesters who've been holding demonstrations all around the city. It quickly becomes very violent, with one protester shot and killed, as well as many injured. The National Guard remained for 17 days after the protests, occupying the city. The following year, when similar protests break out at the University of California, Reagan responds in kind. When asked about his actions, he replies, If it takes a bloodbath, let's get it over with. No more appeasement. Reagan is ending the free-loving, protest-filled 1960s with a cold, firm and violent fist. Of course, California is a small stage for a man of Reagan's ambition. As our guest, Professor Ross Baker, discusses here, he continues to aim higher. Well, it was 1964, actually, that he made a major appearance um, in, in our American presidential politics by being a speaker at the 1964 Republican convention that nominated Barry Goldwater. Goldwater was an extremely controversial figure in American politics. He was a senator from Arizona, came from a family that owned department stores in the state, and uh, he was very much opposed, for example, as Reagan was also to the, the key into the, uh, the kind of key legislative initiative on civil rights in the United States during the 1960s, which was the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And this was uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was really 
an effort by Lyndon Johnson, the president, to fulfill the, the unachieved agenda of John F. Kennedy, of course, who was assassinated um, in 1963, that, that Kennedy had tried and failed to get through Congress a, a, a comprehensive a Civil Rights Act that covered public accommodations. And in the United States at that time, and particularly in the South, uh, it was common to see signs uh, restricting hotels and restaurants to white clientele only. And there, this, is, this was already 10 years after a Supreme Court decision desegregating public schools. So one of the, you know, the issues that was very much at the forefront of public discussion at that time was civil rights. And uh, Goldwater, <clears throat> in his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention in 1964, issued um, a very, uh, very strong attack uh, against the Civil Rights Act as uh, basically forcing business to, to comply with a liberal social agenda. Uh, well, the Civil Rights Act did pass with the votes of Republicans in, in the United States Senate and became law, uh, as did the uh, Voting Rights Act the following year, both of which uh, Reagan was, was opposed to. But mainly his, his you know, the controversy surrounding him, he was sort of regarded generally as a kind of washed up actor who happened to luck out becoming governor of California. Um, but it certainly gave him a very, very important national platform. And, and which which continued even after he uh, ended his second term as governor, uh, which kind of freed him up to pursue, I think, what was always in the back of his mind was the possibility of, of, of a presidential run. And uh, he uh, began making very, very strong moves in that in that direction. But he was preempted by by Richard Nixon who won, won the presidency in 1968. But Reagan never really stopped campaigning. He became a, a spokesperson for Reagan, um, a loyal uh, upholder of Republican principles. And uh, But so long as Nixon was around, and Nixon was, of course, in his first term, very successful, uh, was, was able to win uh, renomination and re-election in 1972, um, and the Republican Party was was very much on a roll at that time. Um, and Nixon, of course, had craved the presidential nomination, had run in 19 in, in 1960, and was defeated by John F. Kennedy. And, and as long as Nixon was in the picture, there wasn't enough room in the Republican Party for, for Ronald Reagan. Barry Goldwater basically was, was defeated very soundly in the 1964 election, decisively, in fact. Um, and that sort of moved him out of the, of the presidential firmament. But he, he really had to bide his time, assuming that his time would come um, at the end of Richard Nixon's second term, which, of course, was cut short by, by um, Nixon's... Um, resignation as a result of the Watergate scandal. Um, and this was a big opening for, um, uh, for Reagan. And, and, and in fact, what really, I think, inspired him to accelerate his timetable 
for the presidency was uh, the man who uh, took over from uh, from Richard Nixon, uh, Nixon's then vice president, Gerald Ford. Uh, it'll be recalled that that Nixon's uh, running mate and vice presidential candidate was uh, Governor Spiro Agnew of Maryland, who was forced to resign. And uh, Gerald Ford uh, was confirmed, confirmed by Congress as uh, Agnew's successor. And clearly as vice president, after uh, Nixon's uh, departure, would have been the likely uh, Republican candidate in 1976. But I think Ronald Reagan felt that this was the time that he had to, he had to make his move. And the 1976 Republican convention, very interesting, because it was it, it, the conventions had, had become kind of formulaic. Um, that that there was you know certain a certain individual had risen to prominence, um, got the nomination, but this was very hotly contested, and and th- th- there was a lot of animosity directed toward Reagan because here was after all the man who succeeded. Reagan as vice president. Gerald Ford was a very popular guy, a very likable man, uh, who had been the Republican minority leader in the House of Representatives. So he was a creature of Congress. And he came in uh, and seemed to kind of pick up the, um, the reins of the presidency very gracefully, except for the fact that he decided to pardon Richard Nixon of all crimes that he might have committed as president. And that certainly made him a much more problematic candidate in 1976. Um, and I and Reagan, I think, felt that that this was the time that Ford was weakened, and that he he decided he was going to challenge Ford on the floor of the Republican convention, um, and to the point where he actually found a running mate, Senator Schweiker of Pennsylvania, uh, to, to kind of complete. A, a ticket to uh, to run against uh, Gerald Ford and the man he chose as his vice presidential running mate, Senator Bob Dole of Kansas. And and the convention was a very exciting one. And it, it's it, it ultimately um, Ford did prevail, but he was really badly damaged. And there was really a split in the Republican Party and a split which I mean, I, I trace the, the the current divisions in the Republican Party to that convention. Um, Reagan um, actually won a few primaries that that year. They came they came very late in the primary season. The early primaries were won by Ford, um, but uh, Reagan managed uh, fairly late in that in 1976 to win a primary in North Carolina. And then won later primaries in Texas and places in states in the South. Uh, and he, he, da- he damaged Gerald Ford and made it more difficult for Ford um, to be elected in, in 1976. Uh, the Democrats had this dream candidate, um, this former governor of Georgia who came out of nowhere to, to defeat some of the most prominent Democrats things start off very strongly for President Jimmy Carter. Almost immediately after being sworn in in 1977, he pardons all Vietnam War draft evaders, providing them universal amnesty. 
He helps negotiate peace between Egypt and Israel with the Camp David Accords and creates both the Department of Energy and the Department of Education. Remarkably candid and direct, Jimmy Carter demystifies the presidency, going as far as to be interviewed by Playboy magazine. Soon, however, he slips out of public favour. Things are extremely turbulent in Iran. In 1979, the Shah, a long-time ally of the United States, is overthrown in the Iranian Revolution. Worse, many of the employees of the US Embassy are taken hostage by a group of students. Things grow increasingly tense. Attempts at diplomacy go poorly, and a military intervention goes even worse. The message from the students is clear. We will not release the hostages while President Carter is still in office. Perhaps Carter's greatest legacy will be his crisis of confidence speech. While it reads as naive and rose-tinted in its evaluation of the American past, it's a shockingly prescient warning of the American future. It could not feel more different to the attitude that Ronald Reagan will bring with him into the Oval Office in 1981. Here's a snippet of Jimmy Carter's speech, followed by Professor Ross Baker's discussion of Reagan's first presidential term. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. Our progress has been part of a living history of America, even the world. We always believed that we were part of a great movement of humanity itself called democracy, involved in the search for freedom. And that belief has always strengthened us in our purpose. But just as we are losing our confidence in the future, we are also beginning to close the door on our past. In 1980, um, and Reagan <clears throat> came to the presidency with a very specific um, plan of action. Uh, he, he surrounded himself with some very uh, clever and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, very clever tacticians, uh, legislative tacticians and so on. And he came in with a proposal to cut taxes and at the same time uh, considerably strengthen the U.S. military. And that had to do, of course, with the fact that the failure to rescue the hostages was seen as a kind of hallmark of the weakness of American, the American military, which Jimmy Carter had tolerated. Um, and he, he, Ronald Reagan took the oath of office at a very interesting time in American partisan politics. The Democratic Party was changing. Um, that the, the, the strength of the Democratic Party was all, had always been in the South. 
that one thing a, a, a democratic presidential hopeful can almost always count on uh, were votes from the from the southern states. And this is a tradition that goes back to the American Civil War. Uh, uh, and uh, and that, that loyalty to the, to the Democratic Party persisted, even though there were very significant differences between the Democratic presidents like Roosevelt and Truman and, um, and Democratic senators from these southern states um, who were always at odds on civil rights legislation. It was always opposed by these Democratic senators, even though Roosevelt and Truman both embraced um, uh, pro-civil rights legislation, and Truman actually, by executive order, desegregated the armed forces of the United States. But the um, it, but the 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 tra it's the transition of the of the South from being the solid South, as it was called, and the solidness related to how uh, firmly the Democrats had control of the South of these Southern states from Virginia all the way down to Texas, um, from, the, from the Potomac to the Rio Grande in solidly democratic territory. Um, and, um, and increasingly the message of Republicans like Ronald Reagan uh, was, um, uh, you know, come over, come over to our side. We're, we're, we're much more like you. Our, our views on social issues are much more like yours. And it's significant that Ronald Reagan made an appearance early in his presidency in Neshoba County, Mississippi. Um, Neshoba County had been one of the real battlegrounds of the civil rights movement. There was a huge amount of violence against uh, African-American protesters uh, protesting, not just the, the, the continued segregation of the schools despite the Supreme Court uh, decision, uh, but, uh, you know, barring African-Americans from voting, um, uh, you know, have, you know uh, uh, dealing with the kinds of, of uh, other discriminatory policies that had prevailed in the South since the post-Civil War period. And you began to see Southern Democrats in Congress supporting Reagan programs. At that particular time, um, 19, uh, 1981 and 82, I was a staff member of the uh, chairman of the Democratic Caucus in the House of Representatives. Uh, the caucus is simply the organization of all Democrats in the House. All Democrats belong to the caucus. And, and the caucus would occasionally meet as a group, all, all Democratic members of the House of Representatives. And the senator that I worked for, excuse me, the, the, the congressman that I worked for was actually a member of Congress from Louisiana. So he was a Southerner. Uh, but I could see what was going on at the time uh, in trying to keep these Southern Democrats in line uh, on uh, legislation that had always been supported solidly by Democrats. And what was also happening at the time was that the, the economy was going through a transition. Um, and, and because the Democrats had had, had control uh, of, the, uh, of both houses of Congress from 1954 to 1980, and uh, in 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan won not only the White House, but his victory was so was so strong, the support was so broad for him that uh, that the Republicans also became majority party in the Senate. 
but not the House of Representatives. So at the time that I was there, the House was Democratic and the Senate was Republican. Um, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the American economy at that time was also going through a transition. And this was an incredible kind of time warp in, in, the, in American political history. Um, and what was happening was that uh, America was really losing uh, uh, economic uh, uh, dominion uh, to, to Japan. Um, this was particularly notable in the automobile industry. And Detroit and Ohio, places where the automobile industry was very strong, were always represented by Democrats. Um, and uh, these, and uh, the, the, there was a lot of disaffection with the products of Detroit, American cars. Um, they, they, they were they were poor quality, and there were some there was in, in some in efforts to try to compete with the Japanese. Uh, American car companies began trying to make small cars and just did a terrible job of it. They were just inferior to the Toyotas and to, to the Nissans uh, that were coming in from Japan. Americans were, were, were somewhat reluctantly accepting the reality that the Japanese made a better product. And this was having catastrophic efforts on the American car industry and uh, particularly on the the labor unions that represented uh, the automakers. And the, and the unions in the United States had always been very strongly uh, democratic. So Reagan saw opportunities here in the, what he saw as the disintegration of the old coalition that Franklin Roosevelt had put together of Northern liberal Democrats and Southern conservative Democrats, uh, you know, basically, working together on those things that they could agree on, but agreeing to disagree on matters relating to race. Um, and Reagan felt that uh, much of the progress <clears throat> that had been made in terms of uh, trying, to, trying to reset the, uh, the, the debate on race in the United States was alienating a lot of white voters. Um, and uh, he and, uh, uh, and 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 other Republicans really decided to try to exploit this split in the Democratic Party. So Reagan was started to get a considerable amount of support for his tax cuts, for his budget cuts, for his buildup of the of the military, and so on. And those votes came from Democrats. Uh, the, the votes he needed. He could not have done it with Republican votes alone. He was picking up the support from these from these Democratic House members and, and some senators, but it was particularly notable in the House. Uh, and these, these Democrats who began voting with Reagan had picked up a nickname. They were referred to as the boll weevils. The boll weevil was an insect uh, that would attack the cotton plants in, these, in the southern states. Uh, and these bold evil Democrats were uh, increasingly supporting Reagan's initiatives. And it really seemed as if Reagan was really going to you know, rebuild the Republican Party uh, after the disaster of Nixon's administration, um, and at the same time, pull down the Democrats. With inflation rising, 
a core part of Reagan's first term as president is economic reform. His neoliberal approach to economics, colloquially referred to as Reaganomics, will ripple across the world, with similar policies being developed near simultaneously in the United Kingdom under Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and in New Zealand under Prime Minister David Lange and Finance Minister Roger Douglas. Reagan increases defence spending heavily, with it accounting for around 6% of national GDP during his presidency. He cuts other aspects of government spending, drastically reducing the amount of public works and beginning the privatisation of state-owned industries. He also borrows heavily from abroad to cover national budget deficits, raising the national debt from $997 billion to $2.85 trillion. Once the world's largest creditor, the United States becomes the nation most in debt. Alongside all this, he cuts taxes. Contentiously, taxes are disproportionately cut in favour of the wealthy with the top marginal tax rate lowering from 70% to 50%, and eventually 28%, in what will soon come to be described as the beginning of trickle-down economics. This pro-free market, anti-regulation approach to the American economy will go on to have huge influence on the world and continue to be politically divisive. Those in opposition to it will credit Reagan and his international contemporaries with the death of the middle class and a move to previously unprecedented consumerism and greed. In the short term, it's responsible for a distinct rise in GDP, but this does not translate to the working class, however, with the average wage continuing to decline as it has been doing since 1973. Yet favour for Reagan stays strong amongst many working-class Americans. Of course, there are many who have issues with the president. One man with such issues notably takes things way too far. Our guest, Professor Baker, describes one of the most shocking moments of Reagan's career. And of course, um, very early in his, in his presidency, there was an assassination attempt on his life. Um, there was a, um, he, he had gone to the Washington Hilton, which is a very large hotel uh, in downtown Washington on Connecticut Avenue, surrounded as he usually was with, with a phalanx of Secret Service men. But this very mentally unbalanced young man with a, with a pistol uh, managed to get through a shot that hit Reagan in the chest, uh, broke a rib damaged his lungs. He was rushed to George Washington Hospital. And at one point, the doctor said, the doctors were saying that it was no better than a 50-50 chance he was going to survive. Um, and some people have, have made the case, and I, I've never really fully bought into it, uh, that somehow that experience, that near-death experience, kind of put him on a downhill slope. Uh, to the point where, toward the end of his term uh, in 1988, that he really was having trouble cognitively. I don't, I don't buy that. 
uh, I think he, he recovered quite impressively from that. Um, and uh, and in which I think Americans of all political persuasions really um, were, were, were pulling for him. We're really hoping that he would that he would survive and he would continue to be president and so on. And there 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 at the time um, that it happened, it's really interesting because under our constitution, it would be it would be the vice president who would be taking over. Uh, but what happened was the president's national security advisor, General Haig, declared, I'm in control here. It sounded very much like a military coup. And it was very upsetting to a lot of people. And um, it really made, it probably ended Haig's career because it was just such a presumptuous thing for him to do. Um, he, he, this man was really very full of himself. Um, but Reagan did recover. And... Um, and of course, he had to stand for re-election. In wanted to stand for re-election in 1984, um, and he uh, by, by that time he had developed a kind of uh, theme that the Democratic Party, and, and this this goes back even to his time as governor, had had really fallen into the hands of a kind of disorderly left-wing mob. Um, that uh, they had embraced things like uh, like homosexuality, uh, the use of drugs, and so on. Um, and the Democrats, of course, chose that year to have their uh, convention in San Francisco. And San Francisco was sort of ground zero for the counterculture. Um, and this sort of underscored for the, for the Republicans and uh, for many voters the fact that the Democratic Party had been kind of taken over by a bunch of radicals. Uh, and they were actually celebrating their, in, at their convention, the nomination of their candidate in this, in this citadel of, uh, of, of excess, of sexual libertinism and so on. Uh, and interestingly enough, the Democrats had nominated the most solemn and upstanding Minnesotan for their candidate, Walter Mondale. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 this is the hardest person in the world to characterize as a wild-eyed leftist. He was a very, very well-respected Democratic member of the Senate from Minnesota. And I had the good fortune of serving uh, on his staff for one of my sabbaticals. And... Um, and so I, I felt very strongly that that he was a great candidate. Many of my friends, uh, staff members who I had gotten to know when I was working in, in Senator Mondale's office, and Mondale, by the way, had was was intending to run for president um, in 1976, um, but he but Mondale gave up the search for the for the nomination because, in his words. I couldn't stand the sight of another holiday in bedroom. Uh, <laughs> that the, <laughs> that the, uh, the toll of campaigning was just taking a, just a terrible uh, toll on him. Um, but Mondale was as was as was defeated as solidly as any presidential candidate ever has been by Ronald Reagan, and there were debates as there are in presidential elections. And by all accounts, um, uh, 
President Reagan did not do well in the first debate. Um, he was hesitant. He was searching for words and didn't find them and so on. And I think this is this is the, the, the sort of incident that, that sort of contributed to this narrative that he never really fully recovered from the assassination attempt. Um, and uh, it, it really gave Mondale a boost and it gave the Democrats a hope that somehow uh, Reagan's um, uh, Reagan's shortcomings, uh, whatever they were, whether they were caused by the uh, by the assassination attempt or just by the fact that he was so much older than than Mondale, you know, a problem, by the way, that our current president Joe Biden is having to contend with, uh, and Reagan was was having to contend with it in his seventies. Biden, of course, in his eighties now, um, but clearly the. Um, that the president's staff people and advisors were, were really, really put him through intensive care for the second debate. Um, and he performed brilliantly. I mean, one of the things he was, was above all, a great performer. He, he knew his lines. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he commented to Biden in the second debate. He said, you know, uh, I will not hold your youth and inexperience against you. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a kind of a clever clip. It was obviously very rehearsed, uh, but but it, it, it did the trick. It reassured people that he was still capable of being president for another term. The first time Larry speaks, Reagan's press secretary is asked about AIDS by a journalist. He scoffs and turns the question back on him, saying... I don't have it, do you? This elicits laughter from the rest of the press pool. When pushed to see if Reagan has any response to the crisis, Speaks simply responds that he doesn't know. This remains true for the bulk of Reagan's presidency. While as president he's focusing all his efforts on deregulating the economy and going to war, an epidemic is killing tens of thousands of Americans. They just happen to be predominantly queer or drug users, demographics that don't make up Reagan's voter base. The heavily evangelical American South, which does make up a lot of his voter base, essentially feel that AIDS is a good thing, a God-sent plague to get rid of people making so-called lifestyle choices that they disagree with. President Reagan's silence is deafening, reading as quiet approval of his constituents' most hateful beliefs. It's not until 1986, five years into the crisis and well into his second term, that Reagan says the word AIDS in public. It's speculated that it takes the death of his friend, movie star Rock Hudson, for him to begin to view the AIDS crisis seriously. In 1987, he launches the President's Commission on the HIV Epidemic, an investigation designed to understand HIV-AIDS and find a cure. Only one member of the Commission, geneticist Dr Frank Lilly, is queer, and the rest have little to no experience with HIV. 
This is despite the many years of AIDS research going on in spite of Reagan, led by the queer community. The chairman of the commission, James D. Watkins, is a Navy admiral who, by his own admission, knows nothing about medicine. Even at the end of his presidency, finally acknowledging the crisis, Reagan is still approaching it with little more respect than he did at the start. In 1988, it's pointed out on posters in New York City that the Pentagon spends more money every day than Reagan has spent on AIDS during his entire presidency. His priorities are clear. Reagan's long-term commitment to silence has a huge role to play in just how bad the HIV crisis becomes. With every attempt at educating the masses about the specifics of the disease coming under constant fire, both from local and national government and religious figures, HIV results in the mass stigmatising of the queer community, further isolating them and leaving them to die. Without clear government backing, development of AZT is undoubtedly slowed and its rollout is heavily stunted. For many Americans, however, willfully unaware of the specifics of the pandemic playing out in their own backyard, Reagan's second term as president is defined by a different political scandal, the Iran-Contra affair, which our guest, Professor Ross Baker, explains here. But uh, so, but Reagan's problem had less to do with um, with you know foreign you know foreign wars or any or, or anything of international uh, of great scope, but it did have to do with um, problems in 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 the Western Hemisphere of all places. Um, there was, for example, a, a left-wing government in Grenada, a tiny island in the Caribbean, um, which the which the U.S. invaded to overthrow a left-wing government. Uh, the fear was that there was a ten thousand foot runway being built in Grenada. Uh, the Grenadian government insisted that it was basically to uh, promote tourism. But the fact was that much of the money for the for the um, um, the new airport was being paid for by the Soviet Union, and much of the technical work being done on the airport was but being done by the Cubans. And for Reagan, the the staunch anti-communist, this was a danger signal. Um, and so, really, one of the first uses of American military force. Um, outside the continental United States was against this tiny island of Grenada. Uh, the left-wing government was overthrown, um, and um, the, um, the, uh, the the leader of the of, of Grenada and his entire cabinet were executed. Um, but more more concerning to Reagan was what was going on in Nicaragua. Uh, and you know the United States has always had a proprietary interest in in South in Central America and South America, particularly in Central America because of its proximity to the United States. And the left wing government um, had come to power in Nicaragua. Um, uh, 
this movement called the Sandinistas. Um, it was named after a man named Sandina, who was uh, a, uh, a revolutionary earlier in, in Nicaraguan history. And naturally, uh, Cuba was involved in that as well, you know, that Nicaragua looked to, to Cuba for support. It seemed as if there was a real threat to the United States. The Soviet Union had shown an unhealthy interest in Nicaragua. The question was, what do we do about it? Uh, and so what happened was that the Reagan administration encouraged an insurgent movement to develop outside of Nicaragua in neighboring Honduras. Um, and these were called the Contras, the counter-revolutionaries. Um, and they needed military assistance to try to overthrow the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. The question was, where, where would this military aid come from? The United States couldn't do it because Congress had passed something called the Boland Amendment, which for, specifically forbade the United States to supply the, supply the uh, Contras with military assistance. And so the Reagan administration, particularly his national security director, frustrated by the Boland Amendment and unable to supply the weapons legally, sought extra legal channels to, um, to get, those, get those weapons. Uh, and uh, the, um, they, they turned to a, a very odd source. They, they needed to get weapons, they had to get them somewhere. And they turned to, of all places, Iran. Um, and what they, what they were able to do was, Iran was, in, was involved in a terrible war with Iraq at the time and needed, needed weapons. Um, and they were prepared to supply the Iranians with weapons to fight against Iraq if Iran would, would then supply arms that could be delivered to the Contras. And this, this very complicated scheme uh, was finally revealed. Uh, I mean, it, there were a lot of other parts to it. There were American diplomats who'd been kidnapped in Lebanon that, that Reagan wanted to rescue, and, and, that, and Iran was involved in that too. The hope was that by delivering them some arms, some of which ironically came from Israel, that they, could, uh, that they would be able to uh, supply the, the Contras uh, but it was, but the whole the whole thing was exposed, uh, and uh, the national security director, in fact, who was an admiral, uh, was uh, faced criminal charges, uh, and and so you know the Reagan administration was really uh, in its latter stages operating under the cloud of having violated the law. Um, uh, and having clandestinely attempted to, to smuggle these arms uh, into, uh, into the Contras. Part of Reagan's dedication to military spending is the desire to make the United States seem unassailable, to reassert respect through fear in the aftermath of Jimmy Carter's failure to remove the hostages from Iran. In 1984, Reagan begins work on the most drastic example of this philosophy, the Star Wars program, or Strategic Defense Initiative. As president, he begins to fund the development of advanced orbit-based weaponry, such as lasers and missiles, that will render nuclear weapons obsolete, 
thus winning the arms race and ending mutually assured destruction. While these initiatives will go on to prove untenable, at least with the technology available at the time, their development is taken very seriously by the world at large. Some point to this military development and the Soviet Union's inability to keep up with it as a key cause of them essentially bankrupting themselves and the end of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev meet multiple times. Their friendship is as enduring as it is surprising. According to Reagan, they have a conversational chemistry and a willingness to work together. Indeed, together they sign an agreement that forbids the use of intermediate-range nuclear weapons. That being said, Reagan always delights in pushing the boundaries with Gorbachev, challenging him with a list of people detained in the Soviet Union. Perhaps most proactively, Reagan famously travels to Berlin and states, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The two presidents will stay in touch long after their involvement in politics is over, with Gorbachev even attending Reagan's funeral in 2004. While it's George Bush Sr. who's in power in 1991 when the Soviet Union finally collapses, most attribute the pressure Reagan's military development put on the Soviets, along with his friendship with Gorbachev, as two of the key catalysts. Our guest, Professor Ross Baker, gives his concluding thoughts on Ronald Reagan's presidency. So Ronald Reagan, uh, I'm a most improbable person from the point of view of, of where presidents come from. A man who never served in Congress, but did serve as a state governor. Uh, and, and in the United States, governors are always looked to as, pos- as presidential possibilities. He did a creditable job as governor of California. Uh, he made a, a, a brave but futile effort to get the nomination away from Gerald Ford in 1976, uh, and finally succeeded in, um, in 1980 in uh, defeating a very badly wounded Jimmy Carter uh, and becoming president, achieving a great deal of his agenda in the first few months uh, of his presidency, you know, really clearly a seminal figure in, in American politics. Um, enormously likable man during and, and someone who was just so well so well trained to give voice to the presidency um, when the challenger uh, spacecraft crashed I guess at the suggestion of his speechwriter he chose the line from William Butler Yates uh, that these people on the Challenger had had reached out their hand to touch the face of God, and he could deliver that line plausibly and did it and did it very well. So, and this at this time of great na- great national tragedy and mourning and so on, he really rose to the occasion because he he had the training, the poise, um, the diction um, to uh, to do that, and and to, and and he was an inspiring figure. In some ways, and not not just the people who sort of uncritically supported him for partisan reasons, but I think he 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 earned the admiration of of Democrats who were pretty 
who were pretty tough negotiators. Uh, he negotiated particularly well with, um, with Tip O'Neill, who was the Democratic Speaker of the House, and was able to really save the Social Security system in the United States and allow it to operate for many years. I mean, it's back, it's having problems now, but um, there was a very important interim fix to the Social Security program, which is a huge benefit, huge uh, entitlement program in the United States. Uh, and he, he handled those negotiations with the Democrats who controlled Congress at the time very adroitly. He, for one thing, he was likable. That the people, the members of Congress didn't dread going to the White House. That Reagan was always entertaining. He had anecdotes. Uh, he, uh, he was gracious. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, that to a very great extent con- contributed to his success. He had a lot of charm. Um, and um, and that's something that not not every president has. Um, he enjoyed being president. Uh, he enjoyed interacting with members of Congress and presidents who we respect for their accomplishments and their character. People like Barack Obama uh, did not enjoy interacting with members of Congress. Um, Joe Biden does because he was a member of Congress for so long. Uh, you know, and Reagan Reagan wasn't, but he he was just very good in in his in his ability to project his humanity. Uh, he he was very generous. He wasn't a nasty person. Uh, I mean, I you know, I can I contrast him with Donald Trump, who, who I think personally is not a nice person. I think Reagan was, and I think that even those people who who disagreed with him. Uh, valued him as president for his human qualities. After the end of his presidency, Reagan largely steps away from the limelight. He occasionally pops up to give a speech here or there at the RNC or where there are political issues close to him in the public arena, but he largely keeps to himself. In 1994, he develops Alzheimer's disease, and while he manages to live with it for a decade, he passes away from pneumonia in 2004. As Professor Ross Baker said, Reagan's legacy in the United States is largely one of respect. His quick wit and personable demeanour go a long way, and modern Republican politics owes a great deal to his attitudes and image. However, there are others, both in the United States and worldwide, who view Reagan's legacy in a less favourable light. To many, the substantial death toll of the AIDS crisis is largely on his hands, as is the ever-widening wealth gap worldwide. Perhaps Ronald Wilson Reagan's greatest legacy is being a true political splitting point, the beginning of a new era of extreme divisiveness. To some, a revered president. To others, one of the greatest villains of the 20th century, Ronald Reagan will not soon be forgotten. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. A huge thank you to our guest, Dr. Ross Baker, Distinguished Professor of American Politics at Rutgers University. 
Please join us again next time as we talk about the difficult and complex history of Palestine. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's NZPODZ, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's NZPODZ.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners. So please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.